Thank you. Let's uh, pray together and then uh, have a look at this, uh, this story. Father, I ask you to open the story to us. Let it speak to us. Let it feed us. And let, uh, let it make us ready for your presence now as John made the people ready for your presence then. I ask it in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. My, my name is Barry. If you're um, uh, visiting here for the first time, um, I'm one of the, uh, the pastors here at St. Paul's. You're very welcome, um, especially um, at this time of year. Um, it's very interesting noises going on around here, isn't there? Um, oh, it's a baby. That's, um, that's a very interesting noise. Um, I thought it was Polly at the back playing tricks on me with the sound system, but it's not. Um, I want to look at this... Um, uh, this story uh, with two simple directions, what the Lord has done for me and what the Lord wants to do for everyone. Elizabeth says at the end of that passage, the Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So I want you to sort of imagine what it felt like to be Elizabeth in this story and why she would say those words. She's taken away my disgrace among the people. The story is found in Luke's Gospel. Um, I don't think it's found anywhere else. It's uh, unique to that um, chronicle. Luke is a Gentile. The writer of this Gospel is a non-Jew. He's a doctor, a physician. And he's also a theologian, as all the gospel writers are. They're not just collectors of stories. This is a, an interesting and helpful way to think about the gospels, that they're not just narratives or, or biographies. They are selected stories with a message. You'll read that there were too many things, the gospel writers say, to stick in the, in the gospels. So they, they've actually chosen what they want to say to emphasize something very specific. And in Luke, there are several themes. You can bring out loads of them. But probably the most prominent one, the one that runs all the way through it, is this idea of God blessing and using the excluded and the lowly and the poor, however you define that. Sinners shunned by society or people who felt unworthy, whether they were tax collectors, prostitutes, the excluded um, Samaritans who were, who were racially hated by the Jews. Um, there's a lot in Luke about women in a very male-dominated society of the time. There are lots of references. If you read uh, chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, it's clearly something he wants to emphasize. Um, there are widows who have dying sons. There are, um, uh, there's a story of a persistent widow with a judge. Lots of references to children in Luke and also Gentiles, people outside the faith like centurions, uh, Roman soldiers. And the demonized and the sick and the famous chapter, Luke 15, about the lost. Lost coin, lost sheep, lost son. Luke wants to tell us that those who feel the lowest and the most excluded are particularly valuable to God. 
And he wants to emphasize that. We move on, don't we, from this story to the lowliness of Mary and the stable and the exile to Egypt and all of that very familiar story. So straight away, as soon as Luke gets going, we begin with this theme of lowliness and social exclusion and shame being the very place where God wants to move and work. Straight away, we begin with a reference to Herod. Herod, whom history calls Herod the Great. And that's as far as we go. He's only in the story here to give it a historical reference. And straight away, we move, if you like, in human terms, down the social scale to a jobbing priest. You don't get much lower than that. Really? That's, that's not quite it, but almost, you know. Um, and here he is, um, a jobbing priest called Zechariah, who has um, come up in a, in, a, in a ritual that I don't understand, but he's, he's, he's not the lottery exactly, but he's been selected by lot, by drawing lots, to serve in the inner sanctum of the temple. So he's not even the high priest or anything like that. He's just someone who only very rarely gets to go into the holy place, even as a priest. And such were the numbers of priestly orders. There were something like 24 of them and the numbers of priests in each order. That this may well be the only time in his career that he did this. This is not, it's not like on the prayer rotor for next Tuesday and he did that every week. This is, it may well have been the one and only time that Zechariah got to do this in his life. And what he finds is as he draws closer and closer to God, he finds that God is already there waiting for him and has elected him and his family to be something very, very special. And pretty soon we find that the focus of the story is not even him, really, but his wife, Elizabeth, who has a particular challenge in her life. And I'll talk about this in a second. But in and through the eyes of first century Jews in this time, to be childless was particularly unfortunate. For all sorts of reasons, which we'll come on to. But at the end of this story, Elizabeth is able to say, The Lord has done this for me. He's shown his favor to me and taken away my disgrace among the people. With God, there is no such thing as social strata. With God, we're even tempted to think that there is a bias towards the poor that may not be a helpful word but it's a helpful way to think about it I'm sure God loves all people in a sense equally but he is for the poor or those who are excluded Jesus said blessed are the poor in spirit so those who feel unworthy and unloved insignificant God loves you He is yours. He is for you. And we look at two things. How this is great news for me and how it is great news for everyone else and why. Elizabeth and her situation 
is reminiscent of all, other, all sorts of other human conditions, but let's concentrate on her just for a moment. She is, uh, in the words of the time, barren. It's a really sensitive issue. Um, it would be a sensitive issue today. Clearly, that is, a, that is a, an issue which people face and um, is a, a very difficult one for, for people to deal with. But the issues today are very different to the issues then. The ability to bear children at that time was central to a woman's identity, to her purpose, and children were regarded as a clear and visible sign, it was thought, of God's approval. Often wondered about that. But it was. Children continued the family, ni- family line. Names were very important in those times. They helped protect the tribe. They contributed to the economy. They, they looked after you in your old age. This is not something that, that maybe we think of now. That that was the way it was done. And when you died, your children performed the funeral rites for you. Again, in a manner and a context where that was hugely significant and important. Um, There's a man who comes to Jesus and says, I want to follow you, but first let me bury my father. Has anyone heard that story? Do you remember him say that? He, he, He says, I want to follow you, and he says, but I need to go and bury my father. It's highly likely in that story that his father wasn't even dead. What he meant was, I'll follow you once my family obligations are complete and I've done the rituals for my father when he dies, then I'll follow you. It was kind of like a promise to follow Jesus in years to come, not then. Such was the significance of children at that time. Not the children themselves, but your ability to bear them and contribute to society. Not only that, but this is a theme in Scripture. If you look back through the Old Testament, I've forgotten how often this happens. The entire Jewish religion is founded upon Abraham. Is that right? That's that's the man? Um, Father Abraham, as he's sometimes called. It's ironic because for nearly a hundred, well, over a hundred years, he wasn't a father at all. And that was the point. When Abraham and Sarah conceive Isaac, they are a hundred years old, this child of promise. And then Isaac's wife, Rebekah, the next generation, she is barren for 20 years. Now, after being married. Now, people didn't live that long in those days always, and so that's a huge period of time. And then when Jacob marries, who's the next generation, uh, Rachel is also barren before giving birth to Joseph and Benjamin. Who are, that's, that's the, you know, we're into Dreamcoat territory now, and if you remember the story, right? And then there are other people. There is Samson, who is born to a barren woman, hugely significant in Jewish history, and also Samuel, the great priest, who is born to a barren woman. This is a pattern with God that He picks out and blesses people who are. Excluded, who don't conform to society's idea of honor and status and says, I'm going to restore you, and not only that, but I'm going to bless you. I don't know why God does that. 
But Elizabeth is basically the, the last in, or, or the next in a long line of significant, patient, faithful women for whom God seemed to ordain waiting an awful long time in fruitlessness before blessing them, but then blessing them enormously. And there's kind of a, a pattern in that, that sometimes we have to wait an awful long time for God to give us the desires of our heart. But he's always there watching and seeing our pain, seeing that we struggle, seeing our doubt. And while we're on the subject of doubt, Zechariah's reaction is interesting. I just remind you what happened. He wanders into the holy inner sanctum of the temple and is met by the angel Gabriel. Right? I don't know about you, but I would have believed whatever the angel Gabriel told me. That would not be a situation of doubt. But worldview and circumstances are so powerful, Zechariah, even in that situation, can't quite believe it. So when you doubt, when you are not sure that God really has got you in his hand, when you feel that maybe he has forgotten me, don't beat yourself up about it because he walked into the physical presence of the angel of the Lord and still didn't believe him. Just a little illustration of how we're made, how our circumstances dictate how we see truth And sometimes we find belief and faith and trust very difficult. And if that's true of him in that literal situation, then in in a kind of perverse way, be encouraged. Because I think we can forgive ourselves for feeling a little bit doubtful ourselves. But the central point here is that God restores. He reconciles he blesses. And the first bit of great news in this story is that this woman is restored to honour, not just in the eyes of her husband, who I'm sure loved her, not just in the eyes of her contemporaries and her friends and her family, but in her own eyes. She was restored to honour in herself. When she says, The Lord has done this for me. He's shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Don't you feel her suddenly feeling at peace with herself? You know, you can almost hear her saying that. I love myself again. I can be me, the person I was created to be. And my first point and my main point is this, is that God always wants to do that for you. He wants to reconcile him, you, you to him. He wants to reconcile you to everyone else. And that's what coming to Christ and learning forgiveness is all about. But he wants to reconcile you to you as well. So that you accept how you look in his eyes. Not necessarily how we feel about ourselves. And that shame, or or whatever it is, that barrier between you and self-love, good self-love, might be any number of things. I don't know what it is. For Elizabeth, it was her status in society. 
because she couldn't bear a child. For, for you, I don't know what it might be. Um, I could probably have a guess what it is for me, but it, it would bore you. We won't go there. But for you, you will know. God wants to lift that from you this morning in preparation for the arrival of the Lord. What might it be for you? And the second point of this story is this, that God then asks us, having done that for us, to move beyond the agenda of our own blessing, to bless other people and be a channel of blessing for everyone else. This is such a huge, huge piece of news for Elizabeth that she almost goes into perda for five months. She, she goes into seclusion to kind of think about it and contemplate what it means. Because the implications of who this person was going to be, this baby, were enormous. And she grasped it, I think, quicker than Zechariah does. God wants us to come to him with our problems, but we must be careful, we must be wary of seeing that relationship, that relationship as just something that sorts us out until we have another problem and go back. Like a divine GP. The blessing to Zechariah and Elizabeth multiplied in an incalculably large way. John the Baptist, who was the baby, turned people back to God. He prepared a way in the spiritual desert for the people to return to God. Many of Jesus' disciples were disciples of John first. And he gave them away. He said, there's the one you now have to follow, not me. That was John. And John lived a life that maybe Zechariah and Elizabeth would not have chosen for him or for themselves. He lived in isolation, in the desert. He didn't dress well. And he didn't eat well. Locusts and wild honey. And a man of rough appearance. And a hard calling. I don't know whether John was ever married or had children. It's not mentioned. I'm looking to theology students here. So I don't think we know that, do we? But he gave his life for his ministry, just as Jesus did. He defied a wicked and corrupt king, and he paid for it with his life. And maybe Zechariah and Elizabeth, ideally, would not have chosen that as the life of their child. But that was God's plan. And that was something that they were asked to participate in. That having, having had their disgrace, in inverted commas, restored and taken away, they were then called into this much bigger ministry for others. John, in fact, turns out to be the fulfillment of a, a, a stream of Old Testament prophecy. If you look at the book of Malachi, uh, in chapter 3 and chapter 4, um, he speaks of um, the great prophet Elijah uh, will come before the dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And that's what the angel says about John. John bears 
the image and mantle of this great man Elijah, one who never saw death, and turns the people back to God. God wants to meet with you and lift your shame, lift your disgrace, lift lift your distress is perhaps the better word. Remove from your life that thing which holds you back, which makes you regard yourself as not worthy. And then he wants to use you to bless other people. He wants to send you out as a living proclamation of his presence. And as we prepare for uh, what we call Christmas, acceptance of that mission on us is part of that preparation. You know, to sort of say, I'm ready to have you restore me and to use me in the time to come. And that's my great prayer for us all in this Advent period, that we will know like never before God's presence in us as the prelude to God's presence through us in 2012. Because the two things go together. And if you're here and you have a burden on you, like Zechariah and Elizabeth had on them, It would be great to be able to pray with you this morning. Just have that lifted so that you can be the person that God wants you to be. If you desire fruitfulness and multiplication in your life in the year to come, it would be great to pray with you and say, that's what the Lord wants for you. And if you think God has forgotten you, And not even the angel Gabriel could convince Zechariah that he hadn't. Then it would be great to pray with you. And bless you. So you can enjoy this season. And look forward to the next year. Which needs you to be strong. I mean next year could be a challenge. Couldn't it? It's um. You know. um, I don't see on the front of the newspapers at the moment. Gospel. Good news. That's not what they're writing about. So it needs us to be in a good, strong relationship with God so that we can be blessed and bless others in the year to come. Because that's what God calls us, his community, to do. To bless the community outside and invite them into the kingdom. Can I ask you to stand? I want to pray with you. Um, We're going to move into communion.